wait a little bit and we'll finally make this connection with Charles. The what else is going on? Well, I, I guess I should probably mention a little bit about what happened in Florida. Uh, if now isn't the time to talk about people moving and obviously this isn't hyperbole. I mean, this is sort of what's so frustrating about everything that's happening right now. Climate scientists and others who've been studying this have been predicting that this would happen for a very long time. Now, the people of Florida, of course, got lucky. It was supposed to be a Category 5 when it hit and a Category 4 throughout the majority of the state, but it ended up uh, sort of downgrading, and the people of Florida got very lucky. But I do think this provides an opportunity for us to have a real discussion and a sophisticated and nuanced discussion about what the future of climate change looks like and what the future of cities like Miami and states such as Florida look like in the coming decades and what kind of measures we should take now uh, to ensure that people are safe in the coming years. So in any case, without further ado, here's Charles. Charles, are you on the line? I am. I apologize for that. Good to speak with you again. It's been a few years. It has. Nice to talk I'll to be- you. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I, look, I don't want to waste anybody's time, and I would love to just chat with you about all kinds of things, including your personal history, because I think it's very important to sort of add that personal dynamic so people can identify uh, with the folks uh-huh. who are doing this work. Um, so if you could, just for a little bit, can you kind of tell folks who you are, where you grew up, how you got involved with this work, how you eventually became a professor who writes about these social movements? Sure. Um well, I, I guess the formative, my dad was a professor of labor economics, so it goes back, he was a new dealer. So that was a period when labor and social change and social justice were, you know, important and in the country. And um, I grew up at a family dinner table where politics was the topic of conversation every night. So that that probably contributed. And then I sort of came of age, I was a student um, in the 60s, um, and I went down to Mississippi uh, in the summer of 65 as part of a registration, you know, to get um, more black voters registered, lived in a black family, um, sort of saw the lay of the land um, in the South at that period very clearly, and uh, also saw, you know, a kind of inspiring resistance that was being led by black students and white students coming in to back them up and so forth. So, and then during that same period of the 60s, I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago when the anti-Vietnam War developed. And, um, of course, with it, a massive resistance movement. 
because, of course, there was a draft at that point, and everybody had to take it very personally, just like the people in Florida have to take climate change a little bit more seriously now, um, because it impacted them very directly. Um, And after that, I went to graduate school and began writing and teaching about the things that really grew out of my this sort of immersion in, um, you know, left-leaning politics. Um, And I taught at Brandeis for a while and then ended up at Boston College, which has a graduate program called Studies in Race, Class, and Gender, and is quite progressive in its political leanings. And I, I picked sociology because it allows you to be very broad. You know, if you're interested in, you know, the big pictures of American capitalism and military and so forth, you can sort of do what you want to do within the field of sociology, much more so than any other academic discipline. It's also more to the left than most academic disciplines. So it really provided me with a home where I could both make a living and um, stay highly immersed in politics and social justice and social change issues. So in a capsule, that's basically the, you know, the three-minute biography. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think it's important just for folks to understand how, how people sure. become politicized. I, th- I found one of the most interesting questions I can ask activists and organizers is what, what got you politicized to begin with? Yeah. You know, so, I think it's a really important question and I'm glad you asked and I wish I could give you a more interesting story, but it's, it's, <laughs> um, I do think the, the, you know, the, the year or the periods that I talked about probably were the most important framing things for me. Mm-hmm. Understand. I was always so, in favor so... of the little guy. Maybe, maybe I'm I'm short, and I think so. Maybe my height. Um, I'm five six. Maybe my height made me. You know, my DNA just made me stand up for the little guy, and that's sort of what <laughs> I always wanted to do. I hear you. I th- I get that sense from my father, who's five 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 six as well, who's constantly under really? rooting for the underdog, regardless of what right, sport exactly, it is. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that might that might play a role. Who knows? Well, and that's kind of the role of the left. I mean, isn't it? I mean, is aren't we right, sort of the uh, the underdogs in this in this sort of grand we historical are. scheme? We are. The left is always. I mean, if there's any, you know, sort of core narrative of the left, it's that the underdog needs to be you know, brought up to the, to the adjust level. So, yeah, so little guys deserve their voice. And uh, so I just see myself as playing that out in my own life a little bit and doing the small amount that I can to, to contribute. All right. So here we are. It's the middle, almost the middle of September, 2017, about, I don't know what it's been, about eight or nine months since Trump has been in office. You obviously were writing this book during the campaign, Welcome to the Revolution, Universalizing Resistance for Social Justice and Democracy in Perilous Times. I would like to go through the book by each section and then specifically sort of focusing on the 10 rules of the road that you lay out in part two. But if you could, let's start with why you wrote this book and sort of lead that into part one of the book, which rehashes a lot of your previous work in some ways about the nature of capitalism, the new ways in which it's developing and so forth. Right. Well, it was kind of, um, it was kind of interesting, the process of writing this book, um, in several ways. 
One is I, I began writing it well before it looked like there was any possibility of Trump becoming president. So I was writing about resistance and the imperative of this kind of, you know, what I'm calling universalizing resistance long before Trump became such a central focus. And of course, when he got elected, I was still in the middle of the book. And so I, as many writers, I had to sort of bring it up to date. And it made the book, in some sense, more uh, tangible because there was a figure now who was catalyzing what I'm calling mass resistance. And at the same time, you know, there's a paradox because when people hear the word resistance, which is what this book is called Welcome to the Revolution, but the subtitle starts with the, the core idea of universalizing resistance. Um, people think of resistance largely as um, simply a groundswell of public revulsion and revolt against Trump. And that's been enormously mobilizing, and it's important in the development of the kind of resistance movement that I first started thinking about. But there's also a danger that people begin focusing simply on the problem as Trump, and that can have very um, uh, very destructive results. Uh, like like people even say, MS, think of Rachel Maddow at MSNBC. She talks all the time about the Russia investigation, and she's really great. And and but it's entirely focused on Trump, and the, that narrative that's generally in the sort of media, the mass media that's critical of Trump. It's sort of like he's the child, and the adults in the room are generals like, um, you know, Kelly and uh, McMaster and, um, you know, Madison and so forth. And, of course, those, those quote, adults are the people who brought us into Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and, and so forth. And, and so there's a danger that people in trying to, you know, rightfully stand up against the incredible dangers that, um, Trump poses by pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreements and, and, and military things that he's likely to do and so forth, there's a danger that they, they go back to legitimating, you know, the existing system. I'm sure George W. Bush is happy because he, he now realizes that Trump eventually will be seen as the most monstrous president by a large part of the population, and that takes him off the green, you know, off the... Uh, bottom well, of the list of presidents and and i'm thinking of the bush think, era as well not just in that yeah. regard but i'm also thinking of the bush era and becoming engaged and involved during that period after i got home from iraq and a large number of the protests and actions and dialogue were focused on bush and cheney as individuals or rumsfeld or right. wolfowitz or condoleezza rice but there was very little discussion during that period of systemic problems you know and that's really the big that's one of the big problems because movements and certainly what I'm calling universalizing resistance, which is I think we're in an era of resistance. And given the crises that I talked about in the first time book, which are very, very grave around climate change and economic um, inequality of an extreme form and militarism of, you know, in a nuclear era, these are systemic issues in a period where we remain very seduced by personality, celebrity, and Trump has re reinforced all that. And so I do worry that the incredible focus on Trump as a personality, and there are things to, I mean, he's, he's a scary personality to contemplate, and he's, you know, he's a danger. I understand. Um, but at the same time, it reinforces the trend you're talking about, which is that um, it can divert from the systemic 
issues that really resistance has to be focused on. And the book, you know, talks a lot about Trump, but it makes clear that the policy, what he's carrying out is really, whether Trump were in there or not, many of these policies, I mean, the Republican Party generally doesn't believe in climate change. They're the governing party at every level right now. They, mm-hmm. They're highly militaristic. Um, in, in, in fact, in some ways, Trump policies are more benign than the general Republican parties. Um, if Pence were to become president, they would impeach, impeach Trump. The systemic forces at work would be uh, potentially even more dangerous. So, yeah, I'm glad mm-hmm. you mentioned that. And the book is an effort to say um, resistance. We, we are in a period of incredibly important, urgent resistance, and Trump in some way is helping catalyze that. But that resistance has to take a form which recognizes how much uh, the system of militarized capitalism that we live in is far bigger than any particular leader. And um, when Trump is departed from the scene, which could happen in a few months with the Mueller investigation or might, might not happen for four years, but um, these resistance, I'm, I am concerned that a lot of people will think that when Trump is gone, we can go home and stop thinking about these things. And right. so that's part, right. part of the challenge that the resistance faces right now. And we face that. Speaking of the Bush era, I'm thinking also of the sort of disintegration of the anti-war movement in 2008. Now, there are many reasons for that. Some of those are actually mentioned in your book as well. Part of that was funding. There is no doubt about that. Much of the institutional funding that we experienced with Iraq veterans against the war and veterans for peace during that period sort of dried up when Obama got elected. But I also think, you know, it was an inability for us to have Uh, For instance, we were at the Democratic National Convention in 2008 protesting Obama, and we were very clear not to make it about Obama, but to make it more about militarism and U.S. empire. And the sort of visceral reaction that we received uh, on behalf of the delegates and the the supporters of Obama was quite surprising. You know, many of them, of course, yelling at us to go protest McCain and Palin, which we went and did a week later, um, trying to make the point, of course, that we are we are challenging systems of power and institutions and not simply individuals. But I'm reminded of that period. And I'm also thinking before we get into a description of this new stage or new system of capitalism and how it manifests today, I'm also thinking about the sort of Alinskyist model of organizing. And I think this also plays Uh a part. I, I would like to see what you think about this, but I think it also plays a part in this identification of individuals as targets. So if you read through some of the Alinsky work on organizing in theory and practice and so forth, a lot of it is identifying individuals as targets and then taking this sort of hyper pragmatic approach and not dealing with people as sort of individuals with agency and who are operating, uh, uh, you know, as as activists and so forth, and, and individuals who have a ton of potential. That there's probably a separate critique there, but I'm thinking more so of his insistence on focusing on a target that is often an individual. Yeah. Well, there are just so many um, forces at work that prevent people from even understanding what we mean by a system. You know, I mean, it seems abstract. It seems dry. Individuals are juicy. They're you know somebody like Trump or Bush. I mean, I mean, their faces are so vivid in our consciousness. We see them on TV, clearly Trump every day for hours a day. And it all diverts from, as you're suggesting, that's true. You're right. I hadn't thought about that so much during the Bush year, but it's true that um, Bush became the central figure. There was a great deal of discussion about 
his personality and his relation to the way he talked about God and and, and you know and it, it sort of it could have helped open the broader conversation. Certainly, there was a broader conversation about U.S. militarism during the Iraq period, but for for some of the reasons that I'm discussing in the book, you know, when that war scaled down, you know, sort of um, the surge happened, and then it, this sort of um, level of engagement declined. Um, the anti-war movement declined very rapidly with it, and I think it's a function of part of the problem I'm trying to address in this book, which is that we have these fragmented movements that um, tend to be siloed. You know, they operate in their own, you know, it can be a peace movement, it can be a particular war within the peace movement, but the whole right. structure of our resistance movements, and this is very, as you know, are very central to the book I've just written, um, is sort of tends to be organized around these silos, um, whether it's, you know, a big silo like climate change, or it's a very small climate like, I mean, silo like a police against, you know, race in, in a particular town or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the danger, I mean, I understand the lot, many people uh, are impacted by very local and siloed kind of events. And it's natural that they come into politics. You asked about how I came into politics. Things that affect you very directly in your home or in your life in some way, student loans or and you can't pay them or, you know, whatever it is, a healthcare thing in your family. Um, being, but the problem is that ever since the late 60s, there's a kind of history of resistance, which I think is really important um, in the book um, and maybe not highlighted enough, is that. Um, since the late 60s, when in the 60s you did have the beginning of what I'm calling a universalizing resistance movement, I'll give you just a quick, you know, again, a person who represented that. Here I'm going back to an individual. But, you know, Martin Luther King started out as a civil rights activist, and then he, as you know, got involved in anti-war stuff. And a lot of his advisors were really strongly against it. They said, you shouldn't get it, you know, you're going to... Dilute the effects of your civil rights revolution if you get involved with, the, with militarism and anti-war stuff. And then he got involved, and he 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 was courageous enough and visionary enough to realize he couldn't do that. That you couldn't separate um, because there was a connection between racism and militarism. And he realized that if you tried to take on one without keeping very highly in mind the, the other you weren't going to be able to solve the problem. And then he, you know, he got shot in Memphis in 68 when he started linking also up with kind of class and economic issues. And he, remember, he was marching with the sanitation, the sanitation workers, workers, trash workers in, um, in Memphis in 68 when he was assassinated. And that's, I'm mentioning this story because King was beginning to emerge as what I call a universalizer, somebody that was pulling these separate issues together, recognizing that they, this is sort of what academics like to call a buzzword of intersectionality, you know, that the system, and I do write about this early on in the book, the, the, the militarized capitalist system is very intersectional, meaning that the hierarchies of power within it around military power and economic capitalist class power and race power and so forth are incredibly intertwined, sort of like a DNA system. And you know, if you want to deal with capitalism and or racism, you can't fight one without really having strong consciousness of the other. But what happened after King was killed and after the 60s 
became kind of dominated. The 60s movement in SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, were largely dominated by white males, and women and people of color and so forth began to feel that their issues were being uh, marginalized or that their positions in the, in the movement were being uh, diminished. And so they started there, you know, you got second wave feminism and you got, you know, anti-racist movements separating. And that was kind of the end of the universalizing phase of resistance that really developed on a mass basis in the 60s. And at that very time, you began to get universalizing resistance in response to the 60s from the far right. You got the new right and you got, you know, evangelicals hooking up in very strange but important coalitions with, you know, Koch brother type fossil fuel companies and other large right-leaning um, corporations and, um, you know, southern racist groups, uh, white nationalists and so forth, which you now see as within the whole Trump coalition. And so the right wing in the by the early 70s, there's a little history here that I think is very, very important, um, that... You had had early, um, let me just divert one more time historically. You had in, in the populist era of the 1890s, the Gilded Age, the first massive, you know, corporate uh, state that emerged in the United States. You had a populist movement, which had a lot of the characteristics of what I call universalizing. You know, they were sort of an occupy movement. They wanted to occupy Wall Street. They wanted the banks and big companies owned publicly. Um, they, they really targeted capitalism as a system. And they brought together farmers, some urban workers. There, there was it wasn't a fully universalizing thing because there was racism and it didn't fully reach out to all the different parts. But it was anti-systemic and it, it looked, took capitalism as a full systemic crisis that they wanted to overthrow. And they also found a way to to enter. You know, they, they formed their own party and then tried to sort of shape. You know, William Jennings Bryan in 1892, 1896 became the Democratic Party uh, nominee, so sort of like a Sanders-type figure, um, although he was actually the nominee. And you had, so you had, that was a first stage of universalizing. And then in the New Deal, you got a second stage when the Depression really brought together a massive public reaction against the system as a whole and brought together workers from many different sources, people who were in housing crises and medical crises and poverty, and this included people, uh, black people as well as white people. Um, so that was a second phase of the universalizing resistance on the left. And then the third was the 60s, um, as symbolized by King. Um, but, you know, a real focus on not just the Vietnam War, but eventually on capitalism and militarism and so forth. But that was a critical moment when everything changed at the end of the 60s. And you got this kind of breakdown of a kind of focus on the left uh, of, of the system as a whole, looking at militarized capitalism. And you began to see the left kind of break up and fragment and splinter into these kind of grab bags of identity groups, um, whether it was women or gay people or um, blacks or brown people, whatever, and they played a very important role. There was a, a, there was a very clear logic to their wanting to take over their own movements, but there was a real danger to it, which began to become more, you know, clear and, and became very clear recently because some 
recent studies of activists have said that the siloization of the left has it's one of their greatest frustration. Over 50% say it's the greatest limitation of the left. It's so our primary sort of challenge. It is, as as, a, as someone who's been organizing for many years, I can say that it is, yeah. it is by far our primary challenge. And regionally here in northwest Indiana and even in Chicagoland area, the broader Chicago uh, area and just the city itself, it is the primary, I would say the primary challenge. There's probably others who would argue differently, of course, but I, I well, would agree that, with that's, that. That's very important that you say that. I mean, it's gratifying to hear you say that because uh, I'm not one of these people who say, you know, in thinking about class politics versus identity politics, which is a very big subtext for the book. I'm not one of these people who say, well, we should get rid of identity politics because they're so upset about this civilization. They see it as tied to the inherent character of identity politics. Um, and it is true that identity politics has problems when you strip away class systemic consciousness, because if you're just trying to break the glass, you know, like somebody like a feminist like Sheryl Sandberg or something, she, what is she when she says lean in? as a kind of identity movement for third-wave feminism or something. She's saying mm-hmm. lean into the corporate system. You know, women should embrace it. They should break the glass ceiling. But she's really essentially reinforcing the larger militarized capitalist system. And she is a, you know, she's a chief financial officer of a huge influential company, uh, Facebook. So, so that And not just symbolizes- class politics. I don't want to jump in, Charles, but I also want to mention I don't think that I, I think that one of the challenges is not just the class versus, say, identity politics, which I would probably argue is maybe a false dichotomy, because another sort of ideological component that I think is very important, and we saw this during the Clinton campaign, is the complete inability of large swaths of white liberal people, especially white liberal women in the United States, to have any level of critique against U.S. empire and capitalism, or I'm sorry, U.S. empire and right. militarism. That was symbolic well, throughout the campaign, from Rachel Maddow to all the liberal left women commentators in the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on. The, so it's not just that there's a class politics that's missing in this sort of identity politics milieu of thought and, poli- and, and practice, but it's also a complete inability to address what I would argue is probably the second half of what we need to, like the, the combination of capitalism with U.S. militarism. Now we could add maybe a lack of an environmental perspective, which I'm glad you mentioned in the book, universalizing resistance, creating rights for nature and so forth. But I do think that the other element there is also an inability to head on, take take on, say, U.S. empire, U.S. nationalism, U.S. exceptionalism. Oh, you're absolutely right. And and that's what I mean by the system. I, I, you know, in the book, I call it militarized capitalism because I see capitalism as by its nature, it's, it's integral to the fabric of cap- capitalism, is it's military. Capitalism cannot survive without military power and expansion. And so, and yes, this is related to, I'm not a person trying to argue in the book to get do away with identity politics. I'm saying identity politics, the women that you're talking about who don't talk about American empire and so forth, they, that, I mean, we, we need a feminist movement that is fully cognizant of the systemic, in this case, militarized capitalism, which includes the American empire very, very centrally. I mean, American capitalism is the American empire. I mean, it's, it's part of a global system of capital, which is um, expressed through military um, you know, forms of power. So those women that you're talking about are part of the problem I'm talking about. They've, they've been sensitized, and in a good way, to politics through gender issues, 
but a kind of gender issue that has been, you know, stripped from systemic, broader systemic awareness. Um, by class, I mean this broader systemic awareness. And I agree with you entirely that, you know, a focus on the American empire and its military as well as, you know, the intertwining of its military and economic character is what we're, we're talking about. I mean, that's really the core of where the resistance has to focus itself. And it's not an effort to say that racism or sexism or anything like that are not important, they don't deserve a lot of attention, but that they're all intertwined and that, yeah, it's, it's terrible that women who are benefiting from the system are not challenging uh, American empire at a time when women around the world are being crushed by American empire and when uh, their families are going to be subjected to massive environmental impacts and so forth. It's just impossible to disentangle these different issues. And so I'm not saying this is just a matter of choosing between class or system and identity politics. It's just a matter of recognizing the intersectionality and, and, and understanding that as this system universalizes, which is one of the other introductory themes in the first part of the book, by which I mean it sort of moves into every space of geographically and in our psyche and where corporate forms become the dominant model of everything, you know, whether it's healthcare or schooling or our own psyche, people increasingly are incorporating themselves to avoid taxes and so forth, um, right. that we need a resistance capable of thinking about and organizing at the systemic level. And I realize this is very difficult, and I'm not trying to discredit what people are doing in siloed things. I mean, there's, a, there's an important part of my book where, in part two of my book, where I argue that there are virtues to silos. I'll just give you one quick example. In the climate movement, um, my most recent activism was around in my hometown where um, a big natural gas pipeline was being built from a company in Texas was being built through Boston, where I live. And um, it was a horrible thing. I mean, it was being, people got mobilized because they realized it could, it's funny, this pipe, was a, a very delicate part of the pipe was put next to a blasting area at a quarry about a mile from my house. And um, <laughs> it was extremely dangerous. You know, this stuff leaks methane when it's very explosive. Most of the people came out for very local, personal reasons. It was very siloed. They weren't political people. They wanted to protect their homes and their, their kids and stuff. Um, but as they got more deeply into it, they realized that they were dealing with, you know, big Texan oil companies and something about corporate power. And then they realized they were dealing with FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulation Committee, which is a, basically controlled by the energy companies uh, of, the, of the United States and is a very autocratic agency in which it's very hard to have any influence over them. And suddenly these people who had been mobilized on a very silo kind of politics, so it was a good thing that they'd gotten mobilized, were beginning to realize that they were up against not just the pipeline that was being put through their, you know, their neighborhood and not just, um, you know, even climate environmental issues, they were up against a massive system of corporate power that had taken over in its regulatory agencies most of the vital levers of power uh, that, that would eventually lead, you know, to stopping pipelines. Um, so I do think there's a natural evolution um, but which has only recently begun to express itself again 
that um, where where this kind of siloed local non-systemic politics begins to find itself confronting these larger systemic issues, and sometimes we'll wake up to it. If I can add one and more thing, I think, if I just want to say that, you know, Trump won the election, in my view, because he was a right-wing universalizer following the, after the 60s when the new right emerged. You know, he had a very strong systemic right-wing critique for workers. He argued that, you know, it was globalists um, and trade, international trade agreements and wasted wars. And, um, you know, he had a kind of populist systemic class critique, which said, I'm for the forgotten people, the, the American white working class, um, who everybody else has forgotten about. And he was onto something because this, he never could have said that if the left had made and, and the Democratic Party had maintained its focus systemically, as was right. seen in the 60s. And, right. and then Trump also had a very powerful right-wing identity politics, which was melded. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was economic nationalism around the, the systemic economics, and it was sort of cultural right, white nationalism around right-wing identity politics. So in a way, we can look at Trump's victory as kind of a little bit of a... Of a a tool for thinking about what reminding us what universalizing looks like, that you have to have both an economic and a cultural politics that speaks to the masses of people and which is focused on systemic disruption and systemic change. And Trump did that on the right. And um, the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton was obviously and correctly seen as somebody who believed in the entire militarized capitalist system in the American empire has been one of the big founders of that and who has taken out of the left and out of the Democratic Party this sort of um, systemic, I mean, you know, it was the Clintons that really decisively dismantled the New Deal and whatever systemic uh, political force it had. Um, right. by, so anyway, that, that's sort of the model I'm working off of. Well, and even I'm thinking during the primary campaign of the limitations of even Bernie's campaign, and I was a supporter for my support for Bernie was almost primarily through the scope of being an organizer. I saw it as a great opportunity to organize people who otherwise wouldn't have been active. So for me, it was Mm -hmm. much less about Bernie as an individual, as much less about his policies. I thought his policies were fine. Um, the, the limitations, though, I think were clear in his foreign policy. And I also think the limitations were clear in white progressives' ability to reach out to poor people of color. So I think both of those right. limitations, the reason I explicitly mentioned U.S. empire as detached from, say, a description of militarized capitalism is because I'm finding more and more progressive people who sort of think that this is by accident. And I think Bernie led on to that. Bernie, I think, unfortunately— the greatest downfall of his campaign was a, an inability to systemically critique U.S. empire. Did he have a critique of uh, the the war in Iraq, of overthrowing democratically elected governments? Sure, but I, I don't think that that's a substantial critique, and I don't think it allows people a historical perspective. Whereas from the economic perspective, he did give people a historical perspective. He would talk right. about the 1800s. He would talk about the 1930s. He would talk about the 1960s. But there was an inability uh, or an unwillingness to sort of head on talk about this connection between poverty at home, uh, uh, austerity at home and expanding the empire abroad. And, and so for us, 
as activists, organizers, intellectuals, educators, artists, I think it is our job to take that campaign and to build off of it and to build from it. And I think one of the dangers I've seen with some of the folks from our revolution and some of the groups that have sprung up from the Bernie campaign is this sort of reliance on what Bernie did. So let's just go back to doing the same sort of platform and campaign that Bernie did. Obviously, I think there's uh, some positive dynamics to maybe taking that approach. There's several elements of the campaign that I think we should use. I think just the ability to speak clearly to people about the issues that matter to them the most is very important. But I also think it's important for us to build on that. And that's why I, I do think that it's important for us to to make that explicit connection and maybe even a distinction from, say, U.S. capitalism and U.S. empire, but to yes. talk specifically about well, the U.S. I, empire. Well, you know, you, you're very eloquent on this, and I think you're absolutely correct. I have this exact same concern. I mean, I, I do argue in the book and more, and more broadly for some effort to create, you know, connections to electoral politics. I'm not one of these um, people on the left who don't think we should be getting dirty with electoral politics, but I'm you're pointing you. to probably the greatest limitation of dealing with the Democratic Party and so forth, which is that they are so bought into what I would think of as sort of right-wing identity politics. I mean, the Clintons, I mentioned the Clintons. Um, they are so bought into American hegemony and to so American global power, and that is the dominant American national narrative now. And, and it means, and so Bernie, I completely agree with you that Bernie really was way too restrained about talking about any aspect of American foreign policy. And he, in that sense, he's a product of Washington, and you know, which, which almost uniformly, along with the media that's critical of Trump, is um, unable to question. You know, the, the points you're raising are, are absolutely central to dealing with what I would call universalizing resistance, is challenging the fundamental culture of American empire. I, I'm not sure if I would make as hard a distinction or clear a distinction as you seem to be suggesting between American empire and militarism and capitalism, because American empire is a product of, I mean, it's a product of both American capitalism and militarism. And if you didn't have an American empire, American capitalism would be profoundly disrupted. And um, so I, but beyond that, I, I am entirely in agreement with your point, and um, I, I'm hoping that the book will make that clear. Um, that and you know this is this is what I think the right has been very. They've captured their identity politics is American empires to say we are the greatest nation in the world. I mean that's been the, the manifest destiny or the city on the hill narrative about America uh, since its beginning. Um, American founders always spoke in the language of empire. George Washington said we were, you know, providentially destined to become an empire and so forth. That was, you know, on all these, uh, it just goes way back in the history of the country. So it's a really, really deep part of American political culture. And it's, it's, um, I think you're precisely right that they had our revolution and the Sanders, Warren folks, and so forth, and the Maddow, who's written on militarism, simply cannot challenge that. And I certainly intend by uh, the reason I put militarism as part of the system is that it, it's so it's so fundamental to my thinking that 
I just don't think that you can challenge capitalism without challenging without challenging the American empire. They're they're so intertwined that um, I, I really have trouble distinguishing them. And you know what I find more interesting, and this is a, a different conversation for a different day, but the sort of components of U.S. empire today and how it's changed over the years and the decades. What I find interesting about U.S. empire today is that it's not only benefiting the U.S. capitalist system, but the global capitalist system. I think you see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in both Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance, in Iraq, half of the corporate contracts went to nations or corporations that were based in nations other than the United States. In Afghanistan, that number is actually higher. So you have more Chinese corporations and Japanese corporations and German corporations who are operating in Afghanistan than you have U.S. corporations outside of the security contractors. So the people who are actually getting the the rebuilding contracts, the people who are actually going to extract the fossil fuels, those are corporations whose capital are going back to countries that are not in the United States. Now, of course, as so we know, you're, you're pointing to something that's really important in my book at the beginning that you referenced, which is that the system is universalizing. You know, we, we, yep. I'm arguing we need a universalizing resistance because the system is universalizing. So when you're talking about the emergence of corporations that are not American who are intertwined with American empire and constitute, you know, are, are running to the bank and, and, benefiting and sort of integral to it, that's a reflection of the fact that capital has been, capital and the capitalist class, you know, the people around the world who control the the financial markets and much of the money and reach of the world, are global now. You know, we have a global network of capital, which, um, you know, really can't be, I mean, you remember Marx always said that the, the nation state was a fiction. And he recognized from the beginning that capitalism would uh, would increasingly take, in fact, always from his point of view, back, you know, back in the 1850s, would always, that's why he built, you know, the first international, the second international, that he thought that resistance had to be global and universal from the very beginning, because he thought that this was integral to capitalism as a system, that it would move toward a global system, and you couldn't have a national capitalist class uh, surviving Forever, um, but that the the legitimation of the system would grow out of nationalism, which is what we're saying with America and Trump very clearly. You know, America first. So you have a global system, a global empire, which is being legitimated in the name of the well-being of the nation. And of course, that means you have to sort of look more carefully at the the discourse of nationalism because it's really. Uh, you know, when Trump talks about America first, he's really talking about globalism. You know, he's talking about having an American empire or American hegemony, which is, you know, in league with, you know, corporations all over the world, as he himself is. And what may have been impeached eventually is that his ties to other capitalist corporations abroad are so integral to his own business. Um, so, so anyway, I think that... Um, yeah, the, the the critique of American empire, exactly the way you're saying it, is what I would call central to the systemic resistance, the universalizing resistance that is essential. Everybody who is dealing with, you know, trial, progressive of any kind who is struggling for justice and change needs to be focused on these global systemic capitalist and militarist expressions of which American empire essentially is the, you know, the consummate form. 
and most universalized form, and, and therefore a universalized resistance means that every movement in the country, whether it's a peace movement, an environmental movement, uh, and so forth, they're all inter- intertwined and, you know, we're not, we're simply not constructed that way as a movement. You know, this, um, well, you know, I'm, I think I'm repeating myself now, but that the left since the 60s has moved away from a way of framing this and from being able to make the kind of critique that you're arguing very eloquently for, which is for um, understanding that um, all forms, uh, this is a global movement and it's a, um, a, you know, it's taking forms that simply cannot be uh, confronted successfully by a a siloed, fragmented, um, purely, um, you know, localized or single issue kind of politics. Um, And again, I go from my, I live in this little suburb of Boston called Dedham, where this pipeline has gone through. And it was very interesting for me to see that evolution I described before, where people became aware in their struggles that they were dealing with a global corporate system, not just a pipeline through their neighborhood. And it seems to me that's a good metaphor for realizing the the connection. And maybe, you know, the hurricanes, and I, I've always thought that maybe climate change, along with gonna, the militarism yeah. you're talking about, is really going to be a catalyst for this. You know, you think about the 2014 People's Climate March in New York, you know, that that was organized. Were you at that march? That was um that was like a march of what, four hundred thousand people. Yes, and there were you know, remember like there were um sort of divisions of that march where you had labor, you had peace, you had feminist, uh right. and they were all marching together and because they sort of recognized that climate and climate change is integral to everything. You know, we're losing our uh habitable planet and um that is the foundation, just like the American empire, of the system that we all depend on and have to challenge in some way. So, so I think climate may be one of these catalyzing um, universalizers, so to speak, because I think you can't work. I mean, it's interesting. Bill McKibben, I think, when he started the climate stuff and was writing about it, was very parochial. You know, he was initially very sort of resistant, much as King Martin Luther King was, to anything that was outside the domain um, of, of environment. That's what he came mm-hmm. out of. But, you know, he realized as he became an organizer, and he, he never had been an organizer, that it was impossible. You know, I think he matured over, you know, 10 years or 15 years from being a writer to being a, a full-time organizer, that the climate movement really had to be an environmental justice movement. and that And that's happening with a lot of movements now, which are you know, reshaping themselves into, like, in some ways, you're not just an environmental movement, you're an environmental justice movement. The same with anti-racist stuff. You're not just against police violence or just against racism. You're looking at larger... It's interesting that many of the leaders of Black Lives Matter are focusing on economic issues in their communities, poverty and so forth, um, but also on the nature of capitalism. I mean, Alicia Garza and many of the you know, influential people in the development of Black Lives Matter openly declare themselves to be socialists, by which they mean, without being really clear about what they're talking about, that they recognize that there's something about our economic system and that which is absolutely integral to the racial struggles that they're encountering and the the, the brutality and violence of 
of, uh, that's being waged against uh, black people and poor people and so forth. So I think we are on the cusp of a wave that we really have needed since the end of the 60s of a new direction. And ironically, although I don't want to focus on Trump, I think Trump has begun to catalyze that a little bit because he does, you know, when you go to, like when the Women's March came out the day after he was elected, you had people, that was, this was not just women, these were people from all progressive forms of life that were coming together. And the same, I've been to a lot of these marches, as I know you have, and um, I think that, you know, you see people who are against the travel ban and this uh, all this anti-immigrant stuff, and they're coming from all these different movements. So maybe in that sense, the Trump resistance is, Trump himself is important because he is a catalyzer. Uh, one, he's a model of universalizing on the right. Sort of, he, he shows how universalizing can be very politic, politically powerful. Two, his identity, form of identity politics is exactly the identity politics that you have identified as the, you know, connected to the American empire. It's American nationalism in a global sense. You know, I mean, his nationalism right. is really about America dominating. We are the greatest nation in the world, meaning we control the world. It's not the idea of a, you know, Taft's 1940s Republican isolationism. It's a kind of nationalism which says America must be the dominant military force in the world because we have a global economic system and we have a global culture that we control and have a right to control. And so that is what our, you know, and that is the core of what has elevated Trump to where he is today. Um, and has elevated much of the Republican Party. So the left mm. has to, it just has to confront that. And I mean, I'm really glad, actually, that you're highlighting as much strongly as you are the American empire idea of it, the sort of American exceptionalism, um, the cultural side of that also is just this idea that America inherently has the right, the responsibility, and the moral imperative to control the world. That's the way the system as a whole operates. It's an economic, cultural, almost a religious um, sort of sensibility. And it's That's a been, good point. It's a, That's it's a, good just a point. fabric. It did come out of God. You know, it came out of the Puritans and out of the... Right. Um, the the 1600s in America, and and that's why it's so hard to challenge. It's built into, um, you know, and this is a country that has a lot of cultural, religious backwater. Um, Noam Chomsky likes to talk about this a lot. You know, we, we're very different than Europe in certain ways. Um, I think Morris America, Berman's very good on it, the Canadian sociologist. I think he's very yeah. good on that topic. I think the same with the uh, Canadian anthropologist Ronald Wright talking about America. And, and these, right, these right. Uh, there, there's highly a lot conservative of religious uh, foundations. Yes, yes. In some ways. Um, and he makes the distinction between the Enlightenment culture and frontiersman culture. I don't know if right, you've ever read right. his book, What is America? But I thought it was an excellent book. I haven't read that, but there's a growing literature on, you know, in the Enlightenment and the, the, uh, the sort of rebellion against the Enlightenment in the United States. Um, right. And the fact that science and rationality and all that, which... Uh, have always been, you know, tend to, you know, have always been problematic in the United States, which has been built on a kind of more religious, uh, fundamentalist, um, frontier, uh, sort of libertarian sort of ideology, which mm. simply says everybody has the right to do their own thing and um, doesn't doesn't respect the idea of either solidarity or or scientific or 
cultural enlightenment that came out of the enlightenment period. So, so there's a lot of good literature growing on that. But in the movements themselves, it's very, very tough. And I worry that the, again, this is one of my concerns about the anti-Trump movement, is that the focus on Trump as an individual has sort of could divert people from these things that we've been talking about for the last half hour, whatever it is, that, that, um, that well, it's been an hour and you with... only have a couple minutes, my friend. <laughs> uh, okay, well, why don't you ask me whatever else you'd like to cram I, You in know what? We, we need to have you back on because here's, here's the thing. We only got into really – I have your part two broken down in all ten sections, and I think there are very yes. worthwhile things to discuss oh, in each thank section. You. Yeah. So what I would really like well, to do is have you back on the program maybe in the coming weeks or months, and we can really get sure. into a more detailed conversation about what this book contains. I, I, I'd love to do that, but I just, just two things. One is I want to express appreciation to you because you have formulated so well – how the American empire, this, you know, framework is at the center of what I'm talking about in the system. So we haven't diverted, even though it not, may not be as highlighted in some of the chapters that you're looking at. It's really central to my thinking and central to the book. And that's why I appreciate your, 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 your you didn't divert from the mission of this book. You really reinforced it. Um, uh, and second, I'd love to have a conversation. I'm going to be... Um, you know, going around the country. Maybe I should even stop around Chicago or something. Because, um, uh, but I'm going to be doing a book tour, which in on the West Coast and down in DC and elsewhere, where um, uh, I just want to have these kinds of conversations. And um, but in any case, all right, I'd they're be hitting my music, Charles. I'm yep. going to link all yep. your information to the Facebook page, Meditations and Molotovs. Thank you for coming on the program. Everyone who's Thanks listening, you can catch me. us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time on the Progressive Radio Network. We will talk to you next Monday with a new guest. Charles Derper's book is called Welcome to the Revolution. Check it out and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks so much. Organic. Organic.